Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Chris, and uh, it is a, I, I am needing to first say how much we love you and care for you, pray for you guys from Hope Mississauga. It's really a joy. I have not been able to be with you as a church family in uh, several months. I think the last time was you were in a, a different location, so it's great to be here and to be with you in this spot. It's wonderful. If you have a Bible with you or on your phone, if you can open to 1 Corinthians 7, the passage that Shayon kindly read for us. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that if I just change my circumstances, I'll be able to honor God more. If I just tweak my situation a bit, tweak my status, tweak my condition, whatever is going on in my life, then I'd be able to be a better Christian. I'd be able to honor God better. You know, if I just had that job and got out of my current job, I'd be so much further ahead in my walk with Christ because this current job is just so toxic and my coworkers, I just feel like they're holding me back and it's just not a good environment. But if I had a different job, yeah, things would be so much better. I'd really be able to honor the Lord then. Or sometimes we're tempted to think, you know, if I weren't single, if I was just married, oh, that's when I'd really start taking some big steps and growing in Christ. I mean, this person, this spouse will be there. They're always going to be encouraging me in Christ. I definitely accelerate in honoring God more. If I just kind of tweak that little thing and got married. Or we might be tempted to think, I am married, but if I weren't married, or if I wasn't married to this person that I'm married to, then I'd really grow in Christ. That's when I'd see some big steps forward. This person, I just feel like they're holding me back and dragging me down in my walk, but I'd really be able to honor the Lord if I wasn't married. And we're tempted often to think about these kinds of things when things get hard, when I'm in a tough spot. And my default temptation is, I just got to change the circumstances and then things would go a lot better. I'd really be able to honor God then. And it's easy to be tempted in those ways when we're going through hard stuff in a hard spot. And in 1 Corinthians here, Paul actually affirms that, yeah, we are supposed to honor the Lord. That is supposed to be on our minds day and night. How do we honor the Lord in all that we do and all that we are? But he actually affirms that we're able to do that without changing our circumstances necessarily. That's really the whole kind of theme of the chapter. We won't go into every detail of it, but he's constantly reminding these believers in Corinth that whether you're single or you're married, just stay in that spot where you are. If you're single, you can honor God by being single. Don't feel like you gotta get married. If you're married, stay married. You can honor the Lord right there in your marriage. This is a big issue 
in Corinth because Corinth itself uh, was a pretty, pretty rough city in its promiscuity and the ways in which it was uh, celebrating and engaging in all sorts of deviant sexuality and practices. And by God's grace, that's exactly where we need to go. That's exactly where the gospel needs to go. And people were hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were getting saved. They were joining the church, the family of God. And some of them were bringing these old mindsets and practices in with them. So Paul had to address that. But on the other side, there was other people in the church who were hyper-reacting against that and swinging the pendulum to the other side. So what you were having here. Uh, and you can look at this, we won't, uh, but in your own time, feel free to read chapter five, chapter six, and the beginning of chapter seven, Paul is addressing all sorts of stuff going on in this church in Corinth. And one of the extremes on one side that he had to address was that people in the church, a group of them, thought you could honor God, you could honor the Lord by doing whatever you wanted to with your body. You could go to brothels. You could sleep with prostitutes. It didn't matter. You could actually honor God still and do all that stuff. On the other side, there was another group that was swinging the pendulum to the far extreme and saying, no, not at all. In fact, you need to completely abstain from all sexual intimacy, even within marriage, because that whole thing is, is wrong and defiling. In fact, if you are married to an unbeliever, you may not... Uh, you probably shouldn't even be married to them because they might have a defiling effect. So we get this hyper-extreme distancing, cutting off uh, completely for this group. The other extreme is saying, hey, there's no rules here. We can honor the Lord. There's freedom in the gospel. We can do whatever we want. And Paul addresses both of these wrong ideas and he brings them back to the gospel. And that's what we're going to be looking at here Today and specifically how he corrects their understanding of marriage and sexuality and how to honor God in our marriages. And this is a topic that affects all of us, you know, whether we're single or engaged or married, divorced, remarried, widowed. Marriage affects us all. We interact with this concept, this topic of marriage every day, no matter what current situation you're in. Some of us here are single and really struggling in our singleness. Some of us here are widowed and every day is a battle for hope. Some of us are married and we wish we weren't. Some of us were married and we wish we still were. Some of us are divorced and are still healing from that. Some of us were the cause of the divorce and we have regret, we wrestle with regret. Some of us are remarried and we're not too sure if we should be. Other of us, others are, remar are remarried and um, glad that they are. Some, of them, some people are divorced and not remarried and they're actually still in the process and efforts and the prayerful intercession that hoping that they can be reconciled with their former spouse. There's so many situations. This is kind of just a skimming of the top of the surface of all the different ways that this concept of marriage affects our lives, affects our friends, affects those in our family, in our church family. 
There's so many specific situations that we go through and we all need God's grace. We all need wisdom from God. There's all sorts of YouTube videos that you could watch on getting some counsel. I don't recommend that. In fact, God gives us his word, his revealed word, so that we may know what do we do in all these situations. God has spoken, praise God. We don't have to come up with stuff out of the dark. We can lean on his perfect word. And so before we get too far, I want to encourage us as we look at this beautiful but heavy topic of marriage and all that it's designed to be and some of the ways that it's broken down to not navigate this alone. God has given us his word. God has given us his spirit. God has given us one another as a church family. And so as we talk about this, I hope this is just kind of a conversation starter for you, that you would reach out to a sister or a brother here in your church family or someone in your small group or one of the pastors and talk, say, this is what's going on. This is where we're at. I don't know the next steps. That's why God, when he saves us, he puts us right into his family so we're not alone, so we don't have to navigate this stuff as mavericks. This is something that we're to do as a family. Okay, so let's look at 1 Corinthians 7 here, and we're going to be looking at how we honor God in our marriages. And so Paul starts us off by saying that we honor the Lord. There's really just two points. This is the first one. We honor the Lord by staying married, by staying married. That may seem obvious, but it's not. Paul uh, addresses the married in verse 10. I'm uh, preaching from the ESV. I understand some of you might have a different version. That's okay. Uh, I'll try to go back and forth as best as I can. Verse 10, it says, to the married, what Paul is saying there, he's actually addressing Christians who are married. This is when the husband and the wife are both saved. They're both believers. And he's addressing them to the married And he's addressing them because they had written him all these questions. They're like, we got extremes on both sides. What do we do here in this situation, in this situation? And Paul's just trying to walk through, okay, answering that question, that question, that question. And so now he's addressing, okay, that question that you had about married people, I'm gonna address that right now. To the married, those of you who have a husband and a wife, you're both believers, this is what you ought to do. He's gonna address what happens if you have an unbelieving spouse in just a moment, but he's first addressing the married people. And he says here in verse, well, why don't we read it? Verse 10 and 11. To the married, I give this command or charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. The words there in in verse 10 and 11, uh, the word leave or separate and divorce, they basically mean the same thing. They're kind of interchangeable. The word leave actually means to separate, to spatially, physically leave something and causing divorce. And the word divorce actually means to be released, to be loosed from something. Well, what was tying you back? Uh, That was the covenant vows that you made. Those, you know, when people get up, when a husband and wife on their wedding day and they say vows to each other, those are covenant vows. They're entering into, by promise, into a covenant of marriage. And so that binds you. We'll talk a little bit more about how good that is. And this is what he's saying is that when 
the, so the word leave and the word divorce, to be loosed or released, or to leave and to uh, separate, essentially means the exact same thing. The result is always divorce. Paul uses them interchangeably here. And so what he's saying is that if you're married, stay married and don't seek divorce. But you, this is what the Corinthians are getting this letter and they're like, well, uh, Paul, that would have been helpful earlier, but we just got your letter in the mail and uh, we're already divorced. What do you do in that situation? And that's why you have these uh, parentheses in verse 11. Paul kind of dives into a little bit. If you're just getting this letter, but you've already taken that step, what do you do? And he says here that he says, I give this command. Actually, I'll jump back. He says, I give this command, uh, not I, but the Lord. And he's describing a situation here. He's quoting Jesus, basically. And he's saying, in that situation, if you've already gotten divorced as Christians, you should stay single or seek reconciliation and come back together. But you are not to remarry someone outside, someone different than your former spouse. Because that initial divorce was not for a reason that's biblically permissible. And you might be wondering, there's biblically permissible reasons why a person can get divorced in a marriage? Yes, actually. The Bible gives two specific ones. And that's why Paul says, uh, I am not just saying this, but the Lord, what he's doing is he's quoting Jesus, the Lord Jesus. When he was on earth, he actually addressed this very issue. And Paul's basically referring back to several spots, but we'll look at Matthew 19. This is when Jesus addresses this very specifically. In fact, he was, there's all these Pharisees coming up to Jesus and they literally say to him in Matthew 19, three to six, they came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, any cause? At this time, uh, you could actually divorce if your supper was burnt, like any reason, like the shoes are out of order, whatever. For the most ridiculous reason, people could get divorced. And so the Pharisees were asking Jesus, is that true? Can we divorce for any cause? And Jesus answered and he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That's what Jesus said. Basically, when Jesus is asked about divorce, he highlights the permanence of marriage. The Pharisees wanted to know all the reasons why they could get divorced, and Jesus lays out all the reasons why they should stay married. They were asking the wrong question and focusing on the wrong issue. They didn't really like that. And so they kind of pressed Jesus a little bit further. They come back and let him know, hey, why then did Moses, it says in verse seven, Matthew 19, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? But he said to them, Jesus because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, these are the words of the king, 
I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus corrects them again. Uh, he first says that Moses never commanded you anywhere to get divorced. Moses wrote the first three books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and the Pharisees love those books in particular. And so they're constantly quoting Jesus here. They're actually highlighting a passage in Deuteronomy 24, verses one to four, where that subject comes up. And they wrongly had misinterpreted that Moses was commanding them to get divorced. It was actually required at that time among Jews that if something went wrong in the marriage, particularly sexual immorality, we'll look at that word in just a second, you had to get divorced. It was required, it was mandated, you had to get divorced. But Jesus here clarifies there's no command here, it's a permission. In fact, Jesus reminds them and gives the correct interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 that the whole conversation that Moses has there is actually an attempt to restrain the easy divorce and remarriage that was going on there. Like you could literally divorce someone on Monday, get remarried Wednesday, divorce that other person Friday and remarry the following Monday, the same person. It was just like, there, it's, he's, he's trying to restrain the evil and mitigate some of the terrible uh, consequences and the brokenness that happens as a result of marriage and divorce. And so that was the intent of what he was saying here. And so uh, instead of divorce being commanded, it is clarified that it is optional and only optional in one specific situation that Jesus highlights. Meaning that forgiveness and reconciliation is always the hope, always the goal. That's the aim whenever sin enters into a marriage and sin always, in some way, in some level, does. There's no one perfect. And so forgiveness and reconciliation are always the goal. But when there are situations where every effort of reconciliation have been exhausted, Jesus says that there is a permission. There are grounds for biblical divorce in this situation. He gives us one exception in one situation. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. There's that phrase. And marries another, commits adultery. Or to put it another way, a husband and wife are to be married for life unless one of the spouses commits sexual immorality, then the other spouse, after seeking reconciliation and exhausting those efforts, has grounds, is permitted to seek divorce. Well, why, why would this be the case? And what is this sexual immorality? What, what does that actually mean? Well, the word is porneia. We get various words in English from this Greek word, but the word is porneia. And it's just a, a term that has kind of a broad meaning. It means any wrong sexual act, any sexual act that's outside of God's original design for sexual intimacy within marriage and marriage alone. And so examples of that would be fornication or adultery or bestiality or incest or rape, horrific deviations from the ideal, the design that God has planned and blueprinted for sexual intimacy within marriage and marriage alone. And when that occurs, when pornea happens, when sexual immorality has happened, 
Jesus says in those situations, there has been such a, a breaking within the marriage that there is grounds for divorce when reconciliation isn't possible. Why? What happens? Why is sexual immorality uh, so, creates such brokenness in a marriage? Well, it's because of two things, really. It violates the one flesh union physically and covenantally. Let me explain that. It breaks the covenant of marriage. Remember, we talked about when you stand up here, husband and wife, and they make vows, they make promises to each other. They are entering into a marriage covenant to be faithful to one another, to have and to hold from this day forward and no other. And when someone commits sexual immorality outside of that marriage, they've broken their promise. They broke that covenant, that vow that they made. But also, it violates the one flesh union physically, not by severing the husband and wife, but by adding to it someone outside of the marriage. It's no longer a one flesh union between two people. Now, outsiders are getting added to it and therefore violating the one flesh union. And as a result of that level of brokenness, the marital covenant has been violated. And his grounds, optionally, permittably, for divorce. This also explains why back in verse 11, Paul said that as a believer who got divorced, or two believers got divorced, not for reasons of sexual morality, not for reasons of pornea, not because it fit this exception clause, that they ought to remain single or seek reconciliation. They're not permitted to go and remarry anyone else. Because in those situations, the one flesh union has not been violated. Now, you may be hearing this and you're kind of thinking, well, what if I already got divorced and I'm already remarried and I, I got divorced and remarried and it wasn't because of permissibly, permissibly uh, biblical reasons. It, it doesn't fit this exception clause. Now what do I do? Uh, do I get divorced and go back? Is, is that what God wants me to do? No, no. Getting divorced a second time does not fix your first divorce. Two wrongs do not make a right. Instead, Jesus actually says, stay married. Again, that's the theme all throughout this. If you're married, stay married. If you're in this remarriage situation, maybe it's a second marriage or a third marriage, stay married. Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in John 4 is very instructive here. And Jesus lets her know what she already knows by experience. It's her life and story. Jesus says to her, You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. It's a very instructive phrase. We learn a lot of things about marriage and common law and all that stuff. But one thing is really true that we do learn is that every one of her marriages was a legit marriage. She really was married. She really was a wife. And, her, and that man that she was married to was really her husband, whether it was the second or third or fourth or fifth marriage. That means, what does it look like to um, bear fruit in keeping with repentance? What do I do in a situation where I've been remarried? Maybe it's my second marriage or maybe it's my third marriage and I'm looking back and I'm like, I did not enter these marriages rightly. What should I do? Well, just like we don't know uh, this lady, this woman at the well and whether she entered every one of those marriages legitimately or not, once she was married, it was a legitimate marriage and she was to stay in it. So we 
as believers, if you're in that situation, you believe what Jesus promises to us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we look back and we're like, I do not think I had right grounds for divorce or remarriage, but here I am. I'm remarried, I'm in this thing. What do I do? I just simply admit it. I agree with God. God, that wasn't right for me. Please forgive me. And now, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen me now to be a good spouse, to live out my marital vows right here in this marriage that I find myself in. Learn from the things of the past. And by God's help, and by the Spirit, and by the Word, and with the help of God's people, live out those marital vows to the glory of God, to the honor of God in the marriage that you are in. You might be wondering, well, my situation's a little different. Uh, I am married, but I'm married to an unbeliever. What do I do in those situations? Is it, is it wrong? Like maybe God's really disappointed and displeased that I'm married to an unbeliever. Would it be better to not be married? Should I actually seek divorce in that situation? And again, Paul says, no, stay married. This is exactly what he addresses in the next verse here, in verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, sorry, with her, she should not divorce him. Paul is laying out here the exact same principle, stay married. Now, Paul, he's addressing this issue, and at the beginning there in verse 12, you probably saw that it says, I say this, not I, or I but not the Lord. Paul's just simply saying, I'm not quoting Jesus anymore. Jesus did not address this specific situation but now Paul, speaking as an apostle, full of the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Spirit to write Scripture authoritatively, is now giving counsel. He's now giving direction. This is what God says to do in this situation. And so he says here, stay married. In fact, in situations like this, the believer is to stay married to the unbeliever unless the unbeliever is not willing to stay married. In Corinth, just like today, you had a situation here where, uh, you know, two unbelievers, they get married and they're living life. They hear the gospel and one of them gets saved. Praise God. Now what? The believer's kind of like, uh, what do I do here? Do I stay married? Uh, I love Jesus. I want to follow him. My spouse isn't really happy about that. What do I do? What would God want? What would honor him? Paul says, stay married for two reasons. In verse 14 and verse 16, in, um, in the ESV, you'll notice those sentences start with the word for or because. And so the first reason, Paul says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. You probably notice Paul has mentioned the word holy a lot. He mentions it three times in one verse. And what he means by this, he, 
Well, what he does not mean is that if you're a believer in your family and you have an unbelieving spouse and unbelieving kids, the very fact that you're a Christian doesn't save them. That's not what he's saying. They're not getting saved here. He's using the word holy in kind of an Old Testament ceremonial clean way in that when in the Old Testament, there were clean and unclean situations. So if someone, say, had leprosy or if you went to a funeral and you touched a dead body, that was unclean and you became unclean. But of course, things kind of change when Jesus shows up. He walks in into our situation and he's now touching lepers and touching dead bodies and they're coming to life and they're being healed. He doesn't become unclean. He actually transfers his cleanliness. He has this cleaning effect. And this is what's now a part of us in the new covenant as believers grafted into Christ is that a believer in a marriage with an unbeliever or a believer as a mom or a dad with unbelieving kids, having them around doesn't make you unclean. You actually have a sanctifying, cleaning effect on them. They haven't gotten saved yet, but you have an opportunity to both speak and live out the gospel in their very eyes. It's like salt in food. Salt preserves the food from getting rotten and going bad, and it makes it taste great. That's what it's like to have a Christian in a family. They're restraining the evil that otherwise would be happening in the marriage and in the family with the kiddos. They have this, this, this gospel restraining effect, but they also have a really positive sanctifying effect in that these kids and this unbelieving spouse is hearing the gospel every day, seeing you live out the gospel every day. That's incredibly sanctifying. It's in giving them more opportunities to be exposed to the gospel than they otherwise would have. And when I say that they're getting exposed to the gospel, in no way do I want us to feel this false guilt like, oh, that's, that's only true if you're like this perfect Christian because they don't exist. Jesus was the only perfect one. What I mean by that is when we sin as believers, as a spouse or as a parent, we admit our sin. We admit it and we turn away from it. That's what it means to confess and repent and you believe the gospel again. And when you do that, you are speaking the gospel. This is this is exactly what your unbelieving spouse and your unbelieving children need to see. In the same way that you're confessing your sins to God, they also need to confess. And the way that you're turning away from your sin, they also need to turn away from their sin. In the same way that you're hoping and believing in the gospel, that's exactly what they need to do. You are modeling, you're mapping out the path that they need to walk. What a blessing. You're just perfectly positioned to be exactly where you are. Paul goes on to say, he gives a second reason here in verse 16, that we're to stay married because, hey, you never know if God's actually going to save your spouse or your kids. You just, God may just use you as the sanctifying means by which they are led to salvation. And that's what he says here in verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Or as 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not believers, they're not trusting in the word of the gospel, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You know, you know what it's like to talk to unbelieving family? 
it's good to be able to share the gospel and clarify that. But after a while, they're not really interested in hearing it. They want to see it. And no one knows you better than family, right? Like sometimes they've changed your diaper. They're like, I've seen you for decades. I know you. And now they see something different. Now they see that there's a change in your life. And the thing that you have said, because you do need to say the gospel, is now being backed up with a changed life. Not a perfect life, but a repenting, gospel-believing, Christ-treasuring life. And they're like, well, that's different. That's not the kid I remember growing up as a teenager. That's not the kid I sent off to college or whatever. And they look at that changed life and it speaks, your actions speak and match and fit the words that you have said to them. And God can use it. God can use it to save. I'll just say this as well. Um, uh, my brother, after four decades, just got saved. And I am just amazing. I'm just praising the Lord. Yeah, amen, amen. And I, I used to put all this pressure on me thinking, okay, you know, like... Uh, I'm a Christian and I'm in ministry. For goodness sake, I have to like save my brother. And of course, I always failed. He never, we'd have these conversations and it never happened. And uh, he lives in the States. And um, the Lord just reminded me one day, he's like, you know, I, I have a lot of Christians in that state, in that city he lives in. I could send them if you just, just pray. And I, I realized like, why am I trying to do this all on my own? And so I just started to pray and pray and pray. And the Lord just brought, my, I remember talking to my brother at one time, uh, this is about six years ago. He's like, do I have a sign on me that says, please tell me about Jesus? I have like clients and customers and neighbors and I'm listening to the radio and I'm hearing about Jesus. And he was all really annoyed. And I was like, yes. And anyway, the Lord used it and he got saved. And so I'll just say that as well. Like God uses you right where you are as a believing mom, a believing dad, a believing wife, a believing husband, to speak and live the gospel. Amen. But don't feel like you got to do it alone. There's a church family right here. There's other people that you don't even know that are in our broader family in Christ that may work with your spouse or may um, ride the bus with your spouse or whatever. And just pray, God, just just orchestrate, just move, just make it so that it's just inescapable that this person is inundated with the gospel. Okay, last thing I wanna say. First thing is that Paul says, stay married. Whatever the situation is, stay married. But we also uh, have a situation here. You may have noticed we skipped over verse 15. What happens if the unbelieving spouse is like, I don't wanna stay. I don't like your Jesus. It's either Jesus or me. I'm out if you just keep hanging on to this Christ thing. That's not the person I married. You're not the person I married. And I don't want anything to do with this new way of living that you're doing. What happens in those situations? And Paul says that we are to stay faithful to Christ above all. Stay married, stay married. But when the unbelieving spouse says, I'm out, stay faithful. Stay faithful to Christ. Verse 15 says, but if the unbelieving spouse or partner separates, let it be so, let them separate. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound or enslaved, depending on the translation you have. God has called you to peace. Sadly, there are times that despite our efforts, despite our um, 
all the time and energy that we put into making it work, following Christ, trying to be faithful to Christ while at the same time trying to keep the marriage together, the unbelieving spouse says, that's it, I'm out, I'm out. And in that situation, it's often referred to as abandonment, where the believing spouse is abandoned by the unbelieving spouse. And in such cases, uh, as a result, because of their abandonment, where they leave, that word there, uh, in verse, verse 15, when it says, uh, when the unbelieving partner leaves or separates, it's that same word that was back up there in verse 10, they literally leave, they walk out spatially, physically gone. That causes divorce. Again, it's synonymous with divorce. What should the believer do in that situation? Paul says, let them leave. What are you gonna do? Lock the door and confine them? Like, like, there's only so much that you can do. Again, every effort, every effort to reconcile, every effort to make it work. But if they're like, I'm out, I'm done, Paul says, let them leave. God has called you to peace. We are to make every effort possible for peace. And Romans 12, verse 18, Paul said earlier, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, with everyone, especially your spouse. So you've made every effort to work for peace, but they're out. They said, I don't want that. I don't want your peace. I don't want your Christ. And Paul says, in those situations, because we're called to peace, you are not bound or enslaved, depending on your translation, in such situations. Why would Paul use the word bound or enslaved? That's a pretty, pretty strong word. And he intentionally uses it. It's meant to be strong because remember what we were talking about when a husband and wife, they get married, they are making promises, vows that are strong. They bind themselves together in a covenant marriage. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. You're, what you're doing with those promises, you're creating beautiful protections and boundaries that allow love and trust and intimacy to flourish because of that beautiful binding promise. But when one of the spouses abandons that promise and walks out and leaves you, that, that covenant, that binding feels a bit more like handcuffs. And you're kind of like, what do, what do I do? You're kind of left standing with the bag. Like, what, what do I do now? And Paul says, in those situations, you're not bound. You're not bound. He uses that same word just a little bit later in the same chapter here in verse 27 and verse 39. If you're in your Bible, maybe it's just on the other side of the page, but I'll just read it for us. It says, Paul asks, are you bound to a wife? That, are you married? Are you bound in a marital covenant with a wife? Don't seek to be free from it. Stay married. Are you free from a wife? That is, are you single? You haven't entered into marriage yet? Don't seek a wife. <laughs> He's just saying like, don't, again, that principle, whatever situation you're in, you can honor God. You don't have to get this or get it that taken away to honor God more, just stay where you are and honor God. But he uses that same word, bound and free. He uses it again, just a little bit later in the chapter, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That is, if you're a believer, you are called to only marry a believer, whether it's your first marriage or your third, you are 
called as a believer to only marry believers of like faith so you can grow in your faith together. But he says here, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Same way, a husband is bound to his wife as long as she lives. And when that spouse dies, then the marriage covenant has been fulfilled. It's been completed. They did it. They kept those vows. They promised to be faithful until death do us part. And when one body of the one flesh union dies, the covenant is fulfilled. And the remaining person is now free to remain single as a widow or free to remarry in the Lord and enter into a new covenant of marriage. But Paul uses that same word of being bound or binding in marriage and free. This is really helpful for us as we jump back to verse 15 of what Paul's saying here. If an unbelieving spouse leaves and abandons the believing spouse, the remaining believing spouse is no longer bound in that marriage covenant because the unbeliever has already walked out and broken it. They are now free to remain single or free to remarry only in the Lord. And so we see here, kind of wrapping this up, as we see two exceptions to the permanence of marriage. Again, Paul and Jesus are highlighting and emphasizing the permanence of marriage. This is, this is a one flesh union for life between a husband and a wife. That is the definition of marriage. And yet, because sin can be so um, destructive, there are two situations where there are exemptions given. One is when Jesus, as Jesus was talking back in Matthew 19, when sexual immorality has occurred, then when all efforts for reconciliation have been exhausted and there still isn't reconciliation, then there are grounds for divorce and remarriage in the Lord. Paul highlights that abandonment situation where an unbelieving spouse leaves, the, the remaining believing spouse is free to remain single or remarry in the Lord. Those are the only two exceptions. And yet we can think of a thousand situations of all these different kind of nuances and unique details of what if that and what do I do in that situation? Again, please come and begin conversations with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, a small group, pastors, we want to walk together and navigate these things because we want to honor the Lord. We want to honor the Lord in our lives and in our marriages, wherever we're at. And wherever you're at, wherever you find yourself today, God has enabled us to live in peace. He's called us to peace, as we just read, and we are enabled to live in peace, whatever your situation is, because Christ has given us his peace. As permanent as marriage is in this life, it is only in this life. Our marriages and our singleness and our widowhood and everything, any kind of marital status you might find yourself in has an expiration date. Because it's not meant to be eternal. It's meant to be a sign that points you to a marriage that is everlasting. You see, what Jesus came and gave us his peace because he came and came for his bride to take her sins away from her and wash her clean. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, we talked about you are now in the family of God. Another way that Paul describes that and the New Testament describes that 
is that you are now a part of the church, the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the groom. He's the husband, and he came, and he made a way for us to enter into an engagement. He betrothed himself to us. He engaged us, and so instead of putting a, a, an engagement ring on our finger, he put the Holy Spirit inside our new hearts, and he sealed them in and says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. I'm, I'm going away. I'm getting a place ready for you, but I'm coming back, and when I come back, we will see him and we will be made like him. Right now, because we're trusting in Christ, we're engaged to him. And we have a new heart and he has allowed us to be one spirit with him. He talks about that in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are already one spirit with him. But when we see him, when the groom comes for his bride, we will be made like him. We will be one flesh with him. We will be married to him and enter into the marriage supper of the lamb and feast. It's like a reception. We haven't had a lot of those during COVID the last couple of years. Imagine a wedding reception that just goes on for eternity. It's just eating and celebrating and joyful celebration and intimacy and communion with Christ. All of our marriages are designed to point to that one everlasting marriage. And in the hope of that reality, we can have peace right now, no matter what marital status I find myself in, no matter what situation I am in. I can have his peace. I can live out of that peace. I can speak peace in any situation that I'm in because of what's coming. Jesus is coming. And he gives us this hope and he gives us the spirit. He gives us the word. He gives us one another as the family of God to walk in peace. So let's help one another do that, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We couldn't make this up. I mean, you are so wise. This plan, this beautiful institution of marriage is amazing. There's so much we could say. We're just kind of skimming the surface. But Father, we thank you that you have sent your son as a groom to save us. Very unworthy uh, fiancés. But you have made a way to save us and wash us clean and to be in relationship with you, engaged to you, and you are coming for us so that we may be with you forever and ever. I pray, Lord, would you encourage us this morning, no matter what situation we're in, to know that the gospel that saves us is the same gospel that cleanses us, even when we may have made uh, sinful decisions or when sinful decisions have been made against us and we're hurting, God, the same gospel can heal and restore. It can give hope in the most hopeless situation. So Father, I pray that you would allow us as a family of God to be able to speak and talk with one another as a family and look to your word, knowing that as a father, you have spoken into these situations. You're going to help us. You're going to guide us. You can give us wisdom right where we're at. Lord, we pray that you would work the gospel in a miracle and powerful healing and restoration and transformation, no matter what situation we're in. We trust you. We love you. resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.